every day I'm chasing something different. Every day the way I operate is totally different and it's not about the product for me as much as it is about the process. And what I mean about the process, the process saved my life. You see, my mother had me when she was 15 years old, right? Over on the east side of Atlanta, we came up in this neighborhood by the name of Kirkwood, drug dealer on every corner, gang members in the neighborhood, two bedroom home, 14 people, used to sleep on the floor. Got the opportunity to sleep in the bed one time out of the week. It was six of us in the bed, three at the foot, three at the head. And I came up with this dream pretty quick. I said, man, I want to go to the NFL because I had eight uncles in that house, all eight of which are still going in and out of prison. And so pretty quick, I said, man, I want to go to the NFL. And so I went to my big cousin tomorrow one night. I said, man, listen, I want to go to the NFL. And so we got to work for this thing. So the thing we're going to do every night, we're going to be patient. We're going to engage in consistent action. Every night, we're going to race light pole to light pole with no shoes. So every night we would get out in the street, race light pole to light pole. One night a coach came down the street. He signed me and my cousins up for organized sports, right? First time being in organized sports. We get in organized sports. The thing was, after practice, everybody would leave to go home. And I always had to sit on the bench and wait on my mother because she worked at Wendy's. And so when my mother would show up in the park, it would be about 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. So I'm sitting there and when my mother would pull up, she drove an old beard regal, hubcaps off the car, seats torn up, the car was all beat up. And she would pull up in the park 10.30 at night. I would jump off the bench. I would sprint over to my mother. I would say, Mom, if you don't mind, can you please sit back in your car and turn on your car lights? I have to do some extra drills. I have to go to the NFL. She would never have to work another day in your life. And I knew my mother was tired. And every night, my mother would sit back in that car and those car lights would hit that field. And he had a seven-year-old kid doing backpelling drills, running sprints, running laps, chasing his dream to go to the NFL. But just beyond those car lights, I could always connect with my mother's eyes, so it made me dig a little bit deeper, it made me push myself a little bit further, it made me work a little bit harder. It created a certain level of sweat equity in what I was doing. It created a certain level of pride in what I was doing. You know why people quit? People don't have pride in what they do. You know why people stop? They're selfish and it's just about them. But when you have a bigger purpose to why you're doing what you're doing and you want to honor the sacrifices that others have made for you, it's nothing for you to keep going when you hit adversity. If every decision and choice you make is just about you, at a certain point you're going to hit something that's a lot tougher than you and it's going to make you quit because you don't have a driving force for why you do what you do. But when I got up to the University of Tennessee, it was simple. It was simple for me to give everything I had. My freshman year, I played special teams. My sophomore season, I broke the star lineup, had a really strong sophomore season. The summer heading into my junior year, I still remember the day where I was sitting in our film room and I was watching film on the California Bears. My defensive backs coach, Larry Slade, came in the room. He said, Inky, I got some good news for you. I dropped the clicker. I said, what is it? He said, man, you're projected top 30 draft pick, son. He said, all you have to do is play the next 10 football games. You're an automatic multimillionaire. I went out of the room. I called my mother and my grandmother on the three-way. I said, after this season, there will be no more struggle. I said, we would never miss another meal. I said, we would never experience another Christmas where we have to stand on the side of the curb and just be grateful. And I hung it up. First football game, I went out and played great, got an interception, shut Cal down. Second game, we're playing against Air Force, got late in the game, fourth quarter, guy dropped back, he threw the ball to a receiver coming out of my sideline. Me and the guy, we went head on. Soon as I hit the guy, I felt as if every breath of my body left. Body went completely limp, fell to the ground, I blacked out. Never happened to me before. When my eyes opened, I'll never forget, my teammates ran over. They said, Ink, get up, let's go. I said, I can't. I said, I can't move. He said, what do you mean you can't move? You're on lockdown corner, man. We need you. Let's go. I said, I know, man, but this time I can't move. I flipped my head up to the sky, I said, God. I said, surely nothing is happening in this moment that can alter my life. 
They got me over to the hospital. They took me back. They ran CAT scans. They brought me back into my room. And all in a 15-second time frame, the doctor came running in from the opposite side. He said, hey, get in there. We got to rush this guy back to emergency surgery. He's about to die. I said, what? He said, son, you have busted up the clavian artery in your chest. You're bleeding internally. We have to rush you back. Take the main vein out of your left leg, plug it into your chest in order to save your life. When I opened my eyes from recovery, the same doctor was over me. He said, son, has some good news and some bad news for you. I said, you got some bad news for me? After telling him I was about to die, I'm still alive. How bad can it get? I'm still here. He said, the good news is we saved your life. I said, thank you, sir. He said, the bad news is, Inc., you have nerve damage in your right shoulder. I said, okay, cool. He said, but son, it's a strong possibility that you probably can never play the game of football again in your life. I said, no way. I said, no disrespect to you, Doc, but I've been working for this ever since I was seven years old. I said, no disrespect to you, Doc, but you wasn't in the park with me and my mother when I was seven years old and she was sending that Buick Riga after she got done working at Wendy's. No disrespect to you, Doc, but you didn't come up in that two-bedroom home, 14 people sleeping on the floor. No disrespect to you, Doc, but you didn't miss those meals and stay focused and never made an excuse. I never cheated. I never cheated. Like my conscience still until this day won't let me cheat. Like I can't cheat. I can't look myself in the mirror and say, Ink, you did a good job knowing that I cheated. I can't cheat. One of the greatest pieces of advice that my mother gave me was this. Son, whenever you start, you make sure you finish it. And the problem with the world today, people get involved with things, and if they don't like a certain person, if they don't like the process, if it's not what they thought it was, they quit. And what they don't understand about quitting, quitting becomes a habit that doesn't just affect you. Later on in life, when you get a wife and you get some kids or you get a family, it's going to come back to hunt you, and it will one day affect them. That is why I tell you the process is more important than the product. It's not even about the outcome for me. It's about can you take pride in what you do as an individual and every night when you look in the mirror knowing that you gave everything you had to it. And we have to get to the point where we're willing to impose our will on certain things. Impose your will on it. My life totally changed. And they gave me an opportunity to stop. And most people, when you give them an opportunity to stop while they're chasing something, they take advantage of it because they feel as if, man, why did this have to happen to me? I felt as if, why not me? This is the perfect opportunity to use this to be a blessing to somebody else. And you know what? It's not even about me to be truthful. It's not even about me. Now it's about repaying the people that invested in me and saw something in me when I couldn't see it in myself. At a certain point in life, it can't just be about you. And the moment that we understand that and every day we wake up, we understand that life is a blessing and life is a gift. And if you were to check out today, how would you want to be remembered? It's bigger than you. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on here with a a special guest, uh, a guy who we've been talking about coming on the show for a while now. We've finally been able to find a good time and get together. Uh, Paul DeGelder is on with us. Paul, how's it going, brother? Yeah, pretty good, mate. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for coming on. So, Paul, you've had a a unique experience in life and uh, starting from your time, you know, joining the the Australian military, uh, you know, up up until now. And, And we'll cover a lot of that. So can we just start with the very basics you know, what motivated you to join the Australian military? And then we'll kind of walk through your career there. Uh, I think it's it's pretty um, pretty much the same as a lot of people that join the military. 
um, everywhere around the world. Uh, I was looking down the barrel of just a really unfulfilling life, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I'd done some some cool stuff, uh, but you know, I, I didn't do well in school because I just couldn't focus. I didn't learn very well in that environment, um, and, and that moved me on to just struggling to get by. I was selling a lot of weed in my hometown and fighting and drinking and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I escaped my hometown and moved up to a place called Brisbane. Uh, and, uh, you know, I started working behind the bar in a strip club. So that was kind of fun. Lots of hot naked chicks and, um, ended up hanging out with a couple of American guys, actually. Uh, one was from Pasadena, one was from New Jersey, I think. And they were involved in the music industry. And, uh, I grew up listening to rap music, um, and I, I loved it. And so these guys were making rap music. They were working at the music stores. They were running nightclubs and stuff like that. So I started spending a bit of time with them and, and doing a bit of rapping. And um, nice. we had a lot of fun. We put out a, an EP. We opened up for Snoop Dogg in 1998. Um, nice. So, you know, I thought that was going to be the, the path of my career. I was going to be a white Australian rapper. <laughs> but not a lot of money in white Australian rappers in 1998. And <laughs> it all just kind of fell to pieces. Um, so I was back to struggling to get by, working behind a bar, just looking down the barrel of a shitty life, you know, just – mediocre and i think that was the biggest thing that scared me was living a life of mediocrity you know no no chance at excitement or adventure and i might not have done well at school but i was well read you know i read a lot of books i watched a lot of documentaries and i knew that there was this really amazing beautiful badass world out there and I, i just didn't know how i was going to get out there and be a part of it so um, my two younger brothers had joined the army and they were in, uh, were in artillery. So, I, you know, I thought about it and I gave them a call and I said, hey, what, what do you think about me joining the military? And they just laughed at me. <laughs> and they, they didn't think there was any chance that I would make it in the military. And so I thought, well, fuck you guys. And I joined infantry. Um, and that's that's what led me there. And it really it really changed my life. Uh, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to the army for everything, every opportunity it gave me. And were you a, a paratrooper in the army? Yeah, yeah. I joined infantry, um, uh, got selected to go to the airborne battalion um, and did a lot of really cool stuff. You know, I went on snipers course, airborne repelling out of choppers and parachuting and all that stuff you do as a grunt. Um, Really, really fun time in my life. We deployed once in 2002 uh, to a place called East Timor. And um, I'm assuming a lot of your um, listeners are Americans, so they've probably never even heard of this fucking country. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it's a small island off the coast of Indonesia, and one side is owned by the Indonesians, and the, the east side of the island is owned by these people called the Timorese. And the Indonesians basically wanted to take over the island. So they were sneaking over the border for the preceding decades. And they'd slaughtered about 250,000 of these people. Um, you know, they starved them. They s snuck in in the middle of the night. They called these guys the ninjas because they all came in black and they just killed people in their homes. There's actually a really good movie on it called Balabo. Um, so Australia and a, like a multinational force went out there. There was the Japanese engineers. There was... Um, security from uh, lots of other different nations, but we did 
most of the groundwork. Uh, we were patrolling the border. We were doing the raids. Um, you know, it, it was really an eye-opening experience for me coming from a first-world country like Australia where we have everything we want at the tip of our fingers to you know, a, a third-world country. And these guys, they didn't have anything. They collected their water from a tap in the street. You know, they, they raked through our rubbish that we'd set on fire to see what they could salvage uh, out of our trash. You know, it was a really um, quite a stark contrast from what I was used to. So uh, I was really quite grateful for that experience. It, it really made me appreciate everything that we have in our very first um, world lives, especially showers and toilets. But, you know, I think often living in a, you know, what we call a first world country, either here in the West or, you know, anywhere in the world, we do take those things for granted, you know. Hot yeah, water, they just become normal. Right. You know, clean water, air conditioning, you know, stuff like that. And often it's Sorry, not. Hang on. No, it's okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I got you back there. I, I think my headphones and my phone are a little broken. Oh, good. So, you know, like I was saying, just often, you, you know, we take those small things for granted. And it usually isn't until you're in a situation where you don't have that, that you really, you, you kind of understand it. You know, it's like you're, um, you know, one day you're feeling fine and the next day you're sick and you can't breathe out of your nose and then you really miss breathing out of your nose, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not until it's taken away that you actually learn to appreciate it. Um, and the best thing about it was, you know, these people had been really hard done by for a really long time and yet they were still happy. You know, that, that was the most eye-opening thing about it all. Um, it, it really changed the way that I perceived the world. Right. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because happiness is a choice, you know, like there's people, uh, the, the suicide rate amongst, you know, the entire world's population is higher in developed countries amongst people yeah. who are, um, you know, or wealthier or, you know, have a little bit more money. And um, it, it's just kind of a strange fact, you know. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, that. It's funny that you bring up that word choice too. It's something we'll, we'll probably get into a little later on because I'm a firm believer in um, the power, the the one true power that we have over our lives is that choice. Right, and it's it's um, you know, like, like you said, we'll, we'll get into it. You know, given the circumstances that you ended up in, um, and and where you've been able to. Uh, I, I guess push is a good word to push yourself to where you're at today. It's it's really remarkable. Um, so so how long were you in the army? Uh, I joined November seventh, two thousand, um, and then I just kind of got I got sick of it. I got um I actually got offered a trip to Iraq in I think it was two thousand and four, and we um I, I was pumped for it. I was like, I. All I wanted to do was deploy. I just, that, you know, I got sick of, of training and training and training. I wanted to do my job for real. And so I was pumped to get this trip to Iraq. And um, there was only a small handful of grunts going over to go and bolster some security and a bunch of other people, a chaplain and, you know, pogues. And four days before we left, they cancelled the trip on us, just on the infantry guys. And so I was just, we were so pissed. Um, 
and it was back to training again. And I, my motivation just started slipping and my work ethic started slipping and I, I just got tired of it. You know, the predictability of what I had to do, go out bush, dig a hole, shit in a hole, sleep in a hole, fight out of a hole, walk, 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 fight. You know, it was just I needed more than that. You know, after after everything the, the army had taught me, it, it – made me more driven to push even further. Um, but I didn't really know what to do. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go out and try for the, the SAS, which is our special forces or the commandos. Cause I was just sick of being a grunt. Uh, I didn't want to go out bush that much anymore. So I started to look around at my other options. You know, it's a big military out there. There's, there's a lot of rewarding jobs that you can transfer into. So um, 2005, I found out about these guys called the clearance divers. Um, we were doing uh, Hewitt. I don't know what you guys call it, um, helicopter underwater escape training. Mm. And um, one of the safety guys was this thing called a clearance diver. And I, I really didn't know too much about him. I, I knew they were, like, you know, a very elite squad. It was really hard to get into. Um, but the guy sold it to me. You know, I'd never dived in my life. But I was very comfortable in the water. I was um, a competitive swimmer in school. So I thought, you know, fuck this. I'm, I'm just going to give it a crack. Let's, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Um, so eventually my paperwork went through. I trained for about six months beforehand uh, just to prepare because I'd heard horror stories about trying to get into this branch. Um, so changed over to the Navy to do the first course, which was ship's divers, learning to scuba dive and search for bombs. And that was pretty intense. Um, PT every day was really full on. Um, and went on for three weeks and I passed that course. And then you go on to the selection course, which is 10 days. And, um, you know, 70% of my course quit. You know, I think we started with some like 37 people. Uh, we ended up with 10 and most of them quit on the first day. They do this thing called a, a gate-to-gate run and it lasts about five hours and you, you finish up, um, you, you know, you're doing Indian file, you're doing fireman's carries, you're doing hill sprints, stair sprints, all, all just constantly going. And then you get back down the hill to the dive school and they say, all right, lads, stretch up, you're doing it all again. And people just – they just take off their little blazers, their little, you know, um, neon yellow blazers with a number on it and go, no, and hand it in and say, I quit. So it, it was it was pretty full on, you know, six-hour swims through Sydney Harbour in the middle of the night, pulling boats, pack marching, all that sort of stuff that you hear about on um, Buds and Hell Week. Um, so it, it was – you pass that course and you're on top of the world, man, and – so that just gave me this whole new lease on life. I, I discovered this job that I loved. I was you know, living the dream. I was traveling around with my mates all across the globe, jumping out of planes, blowing stuff up, shooting guns. Um, I lived at beautiful Bondi Beach and I rode a big oh, nice. black Italian sports bike. I was just living that epitome of, of a dream. And and so the, the clearance divers are – is it your main type of job and focus and responsibility is to disarm ordnance or is it kind of, you guys kind of cover a bunch of different things? Yeah. Yeah. We have to do everything. We don't have as many people as you do out here in the States. Um, so the main roles that we do are, um, maritime tactical operations. So O2 breathing for reconnaissance, attack swimming, um, um, mine countermeasures. So, 
finding and disposing of seaborne mines and explosives, uh, underwater battle damage repair, which is um, uh, salvage and repair, basically, you know, the, the drilling, the uh, ultrathermic broco cutting guns, you know, all that sort of stuff, um, diving on the helmets, and um, also EOD. So we'll do underwater and land-based EOD. Okay, right, and I know... You know, having a smaller military, I guess you guys have to cover more generally, um, you know, versus here in the States, this, we have such a humongous military and a huge budget that you can have very specialized units to do very specific jobs. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, 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 the difference is that uh, you guys have so much more to do because your military is all around the globe and you have right. these all very complicated tasks that you have to do. So while we as clearance divers have to do it all, your specialized units seem to do a lot more within those units. Um, so I definitely wouldn't take anything away from them, but it's uh, we just we just have to have broader strokes for the clearance divers because we don't have that personnel. We got to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's it's something I've uh, found to be kind of a common theme amongst. Uh, <laughs> Some of my Australian military friends who, you know, are either in the SAS or the commandos where, you know, guys were doing all this training. And, and like you were saying before, you, you wanted to do your actual job in combat on, on a deployment. But, you know, due to, you know, political reasons or, you know, whatever the, the government was dealing with at the time, uh, guys were being held back from rotations and, um you know, I, I think from the conversation I had about it, the, what I what I was told is that a lot of guys were then getting out um, of the military because of that. Um, yeah, that yeah, there was a lot of a lot of frustration going on, um, and I think part of it, uh, especially with the clearance divers, was that the, the military didn't know how to utilize us properly. They didn't understand the capacity that we worked in and everything that we could do. Um, so eventually. We started, um, you know, heading into Afghanistan doing land-based EOD. Uh, that's and that's like a, a fringe job for us, you know, being clearance divers. Um, but it, it was it was nice for the lads to start getting more more active service uh, experience. But it, it took a long time, and I think it was the same with the commandos and the SAS. It was well, maybe not so much the SAS because. Everyone knew, you know, they're like the the crowning achievement of special forces in Australia. So if there's a, a job that the government didn't know who to send, they just send the SAS in over and over and over. And those guys just got worked to the bone. So they were actually leaving a lot of the time because they were just burned out. Yeah, that, that's a problem that's now, you know, we're facing over here in the States with the special operations community kind of leading the fight in this, this global conflict. And, you know, like you said before, we're in so many different places fighting against this, these, um, you know, this ideology that, you know, there are guys with, you know, 15 deployments, 16 deployments, you know, 10 deployments over, you know, the last 15, 16 years. So. Yeah, that's out of control. And you're, you're, the U.S. deployments seem to be a lot longer than ours as well. So I, I'm pretty sure our maximum deployment is eight months, and that's maximum. And some of your guys are heading over there for a really long time, back-to-back deployments. And yeah. you know, that's that's a, a stark reality of why there's so many people 
taking their lives now because it's just it's it, or going back to do more deployments because they either can't manage their lives in the real world now, um, so they just end it or they go back continuously because that's all they really know how to handle now. There's, you know, I, I haven't been into a, a battle scenario like those guys have, but I know what it's like on deployment where it's almost a simplicity. All you've got to do is survive and keep your boys alive as opposed to the complexity of coming back to real life and you've got to do taxes, you look after the kids, you've got to make the wife happy, you've got to go to your work. And it's just, it's almost a simplicity, like a, a beautiful simplicity to be deployed. Yeah, it, it, it's very, it's it's almost, um, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but, you know, there have been guys on the U.S. side who have done interviews, um, you know, tip of the spear, tier one units, uh, double digit deployments. And I remember watching one of these interviews and um, the, the guy speaking was saying that it got to a point for him where he felt more relaxed and calm in Iraq than he did in his own living room. And yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. And when he said it, it just kind of blew my mind, you know, and it's like, you know, wh- where do you have to be at mentally you know, physically, you know, the, your physical brain and, you know, inside your brain as well. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, with the PTSD and the, and the, all of these issues that come with it, uh, often it's misdiagnosed and it's really just physical brain damage, you know? And, um, yeah. and as a result of that physical brain damage, some of these other symptoms start to pop up. Uh, but it's, it's really, um, you know, something that has to be addressed uh, as far as forces getting burned out, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a huge gap. Um, I don't know about the rest of the world, but I definitely know in the U.S. and in Australia, there's a, a huge gap where people are slipping through the cracks. Even just recently, we, we've had another a guy, one of my sister's friends. My sister was in the military as well. She went to Iraq, uh, Kuwait, Afghanistan. And one of her friends just took his own life. Um, and he was one of the, the happy-go-lucky, like, friendly, jovial sort of people you will ever meet. And for someone to take, like, that to take their lives, it's like, it, it can happen to anyone. Like, you, you just start to slide down this hole of depression and post-traumatic stress. And if there's no one there to help you out of that, then you, you don't see any other options yeah and um it's you know it is a a uh, issue if you look at any point in history uh, from wars past you know with more modern wars in the last 150 years or if you go back even further uh suicide and and post traumatic stress uh has been around for a while now you know it's just had different names yeah yeah I think uh, some people are, are definitely more prone to it as well. Um, I, I like I don't have it. I, I have no idea why. Um, you know, I don't have bad dreams. I don't. I've never had a flashback. I'm pretty sure I don't have PTSD. PDE, I don't have anger outbursts or anything like that. And right. you know, I I, it, I may not have been on deployment getting shelled, but I did go through a lot of people's worst nightmare. Right. And 
I'm not particularly strong. I'm not particularly emotionally connected or what have you. I don't like talking to people to get shit off my chest. So I think some people are just more prone to it than others. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are there are guys who go through some of these things in his constant deployments, and it's not something that really bothers them as opposed to some other people. Um, yeah, they might do one deployment and come home busted. Right, it just happens. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're still in the Navy? Uh, technically, I'm still in the Navy Reserve. Uh, I left full time service um, August 2012. Um, uh, other opportunities came up and my career was not progressing at all. They were not going to give me an opportunity to, to go any further really. So I had to make that really tough call, uh, which was probably one of the, the scariest things I've ever done to leave that security blanket of the military, not having any other skills. You know, I, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, um, when I was in the military, I knew that I didn't want to be it in my whole life, but I had no idea what I was going to do. What, you know, how do these skills of shooting guns and rocket launchers and jumping out of planes and getting rid of bombs transfer over to the real world? Especially when you have one leg and one hand, you look like you're terrible at your job. <laughs> so, okay, so let, let's talk about that. Um, you know, it, it is something that, you know, it's it's a very traumatic event. Uh, obviously, it changes your life moving forward. Uh, can we talk about, like, let's go through that entire process and then, you know, let's talk about what you've been doing more recently as well. Sure. Um, in 2009, February 2009, um uh, I've been working with the clearance divers for about four years, uh, four or five years, and we were in Sydney Harbour doing a, a counterterrorism exercise. Um, the, what was happening was the RNG department of the military wanted to test some unmanned video and sonar equipment, and the goal was they could take this equipment anywhere around the world and put it on a ship or put it on a wharf uh, or a pier, and they could turn it on, and it would automatic, automatically detect and track attack swimmers and divers using sonar and video. Uh, and then the alarms would go off and people would come running and kill the bad guys. So uh, they set it all up and we were acting as the attack swimmers to see if it could detect us. And it was going to be a three-tier three, three tier type thing. We were going to do surface swimming, scuba diving, and then oxygen rebreathers um, to see if it could get us uh, just as a, a moving body without bubbles. Uh, so I was the second guy in that day. I just pulled out one of the new guys uh, to take over, and I was swimming on the surface on my back, a pair of fins and a black wetsuit. And while I was headed towards my endpoint, a bull shark came up from underneath me and grabbed me by the hamstring of my right leg and my hand in the same bite. And this is my worst nightmare. Uh, you know, I was – terrified of sharks but you know in our jobs we have you know we have missions and we have responsibilities so you just put that shit to the back of your mind you get on focus with your task and then all of a sudden there's a fucking shark attached to you eating you and i didn't really know what to do man it was just it, it actually took me what felt like a couple of seconds for it to process 
because I'd never even seen a large shark before. I'd seen small ones, sure, and I think we'd been bumped by big ones in the middle of the night, but you never saw them. And then all of a sudden there's this, you know, this monster head with teeth half embedded into your leg and your hand stuck in there and you can't pull your hand out and you can't I, I didn't even feel any pain. The the teeth were so sharp that they just sliced straight into my body and it it hadn't even hurt. It just felt like someone had hit me in the leg with a bat. And so finally my survival instincts kicked in and I thought, oh fuck, I've seen the crocodile hunter. I'll jab it in the eyeball, but it had my hand. <laughs> So I couldn't do that. I tried to push it off by the nose, but that just pushed the teeth of the lower jaw deeper into the back of my leg. So, you know, last ditch resort, you hear from everyone, punch it in the nose. So I cocked back and went to swing at it. And just as I started to do that, it shook its head and the pain kicked in and it just took all the strength out of that punch. And the pain of that shark thrashing me and ripping the flesh out of my body was something that I'll never be able to describe to people. And they say that you can't recall pain. I call bullshit because <laughs> I, I can recall that pain. Uh, and I think the phantom pains that I get actually help me with that though. But uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. So when, when you say phantom pain, just quickly, you mean like you could almost feel it again? Yeah, so the when you lose limbs, they've got this thing called phantom pains where they don't actually know why it happens. They suspect that maybe it's nerves firing um, into an area where it should be joined by another nerve, but that the rest of that nerve's not there, so it's just sort of fire, firing an electrical impulse out into the muscles. Um, I have no idea what, what causes it. All I know is it really fucking hurts. Um, and I don't get them very often, uh, thankfully, uh, in my leg, it feels like I'm being shocked electrically from my hip down into my foot. That's not even there. Um, and that is immensely painful in my hand. Uh, it feels like I'm being stung by a bee over and over and over. Um, but like I said, thankfully I don't get them very often. I usually get them if I'm just really hung over or run down. Um, but what I have all of the time is more a sensation. It's like a very intense pins and needles that never, ever goes away. Um, it's, it's in my foot, it's in my hand, and I just deal with it every minute of every day. Um, now it's not so bad. Like I just tune it out. It's part of everyday life. But in the, in the early days, you know, it, that shit brought me to tears because wow. I'd be laying in my bed trying to sleep and you have nothing else to focus on except your pain. So it kept me awake and it would I just cry myself to sleep so many nights just wondering how the fuck I was going to deal with this for the rest of my life, wondering if it would ever go away um, and, and it never did. But, you know, that, that's the funny thing about the, the human spirit, man. You know, doctors know a lot about medication. They know a lot about the human body, but they can't account for the human spirit. And that, that comes into play in, in every aspect of human recovery and how much we can push our minds and our bodies beyond what is reasonably expected of it. And now, man, that, that phantom sensation is there. I can feel it right now. It's like my foot is being um, squashed and my hand is being squashed and I have really, really bad pins and needles. But in five minutes, I won't even be thinking about it. 
and it, it'll just disappear into the into the noise, like listen, having TV playing on in the background. So um, sometimes when you're going through something like that, you just you just got to get through those early periods because you will get through it. It might be hard. It might be super frustrating and annoying, and you might cry yourself to sleep like I did. I don't know, but eventually it gets better. You learn to deal with these things. You just got to keep on, keep it on. Yeah. I mean, that's really the only way, right? I mean, like, and that, and what's incredible about what you're saying is that can apply to everything in life. You know, Uh, obviously to anyone who's gone through any type of really horrific injuries like that, um, you know, I'm sure it'll it'll help motivate them, you know, but it, it can just that that can be applied to any kind of difficult situation. And, um, you know, that's what makes your experiences and your ability to retell and talk about these things so valuable, you know. Um, yeah, it, it helps, man. It, you know, I was lucky enough to go to the Marine Corps Wounded Warrior Trials down at Camp Pendleton uh, in 2011 and 2012. And. It was the going down there, you know, we had seven Australians, about 150 Marines, uh, some some Brits and some Canadians and stuff. And going there in 2011 was the first time in two and a half years that I didn't feel self-conscious because I felt like I was around not just my brother's but also people that have been through that shit as well. There was people missing legs. There was people missing arms. There was guys missing both legs. There was a guy that had to wheel around on a seated, um, you know, what's those, what's those one wheeled things called that they go and give tours on? Um, like a, uh, like a, you mean like a seat with a wheel? Yeah, like a Segway, a Segway. So this guy okay. had to he had to ride a seated Segway around everywhere because he'd been caught in a blast zone and his body was so jacked up that he couldn't walk four steps without overheating. You know, there was wow. a, a, a guy called Chucky who swum the 50 metres freestyle blind with no legs. You know, wow. that, those, being around those people, man, that taught me so much. It gave me such an appreciation for, for having – the opportunity to spend time with people that are going through the same shit as me and being able to talk to them about it and get it off my chest, it, it, it really helps a lot. And I know a lot of people, me included, being in the military, we get trained to bottle all that shit up because, you know, those feelings, they're not going to help you in a war zone. They're not going to help you when you're being pushed to your limits. So you've got to bury all that shit down and just Focus on your task at hand. Don't worry about the pain. Don't worry about the emotions. Just fucking finish your task. But that could come back to bite you in the ass. And when you go through something like this, some traumatic experience, it really, really helps if you can unload on people, especially your brothers and your sisters in the military that that get it, you know, because a lot of people out there in the civvy world, they're not going to get it. Right. So now when you were um – you know, kind of backtracking back to the the, the incident itself. Uh, you know, when when the shark starts kind of thrashing around, did anyone realize what was happening, or were you kind of on your own for a second? Yeah, I had a safety boat uh, with three of my buddies in it, about um, about two hundred, three hundred yards away, and they had seen the thrashing and stuff, and called it in and started heading over towards me. Um, but it, the whole attack lasted maybe 10 seconds it okay. took me underwater i was 
I was yelling because I was in agony. I was trying to signal, but the shark took me underwater. And at the same time, I'm drowning. So after about six, seven seconds, I just thought there's no way I'm getting out of this. I'm going to die right now. And when that happened, I, I felt panic initially. But then it all sort of went calm and I wasn't afraid and I realized that in those 31 years that I'd lived, I'd lived probably 10 lives and I don't think it was things slowing down. I think in moments like that, you're pumped so full of adrenaline and, and what other chemicals, your brain just moves at light speed. And so I was thinking all of this stuff in, in milliseconds and I just thought, you know what, if I'm going to go now, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm ready to go. But then the next second I could feel that I wasn't being thrashed around and my wetsuit made me positively buoyant. So I popped to the surface and the, the shark's tail thrashed water in my face. So I knew it wasn't attached to me anymore. I could see my safety boat coming towards me. So I just thought, fuck, I got to get out of here. And I started to swim with one hand and I took my arm out of the water to take a stroke, but my hand was gone. And all those hundreds of hours of medical training kicked in and I thought I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding. So I kept one arm out of the water. I started swimming with one hand and one leg because I couldn't even feel my right leg. Uh, and I, to be honest, I didn't think I was going to make it. I thought this shark's going to come back or another shark's going to smell the blood. We all know bull sharks were in the harbour. Just no one had been attacked in 60 years. But with this much blood in the water, surely there's going to be another one coming around. And all this is running through my head. And I just thought, I'm fucked. I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it to the boat. But I just kept swimming anyway. And the guys in the safety boat said they could see me swimming through a pool of my own blood. And it was just so thick they could actually taste it in the air. Um, but luckily they got to me first and they pulled me out of the water, laid me flat in the boat. And just out of the sheer relief of not being eaten anymore, I relaxed. My eyes rolled back in my head and I passed out. Um, my buddy Tomo, you know, his medical training kicked in and he thought I was going into cardiac arrest. So he, he started pummeling me in the chest. You know, a series of short, sharp jabs, as we get told, you know, trying to stimulate my heart to wake me back up, and it, and it did. And I woke up and I looked over and my hand's mangled, ripped off by a shark, and I look up and Tomo's beating the shit out of me, and I just think, today sucks. Um, but I knew, the, I, I knew the boys had all done exactly what they were supposed to. I could feel someone tugging on my leg, so I knew they were putting a tourniquet above the wound. I could hear the engine going. So I knew we were headed towards a wharf, and as long as I could keep my eyes open, as long as I could see Tomo, as long as I could hear his voice, I knew I was still alive. That's all I did. I just listened to him. I tried to talk to him. I tried to keep my eyes open. And all, all the while, I'm just leaking blood. Um, by the time we got to the pier, the boat was an inch deep in my blood. Um, my chief wow. came down to take control, and he already thought I was dead because I was so white and there was so much blood that he just didn't think that anyone could survive that. Um, but then I moved and he's like, oh, fuck, he's still alive. So he took control, took off the tourniquet, um, located an artery in my leg squirting blood. So he grabbed one of the new guys and um, he had to stick his hand in my leg and pinch close the artery to stop me from bleeding out. Um, so you know what? Everything fell into, everything fell into place, man. The, all that training – 
you know, the fact that my job was so hard that my body was used to surviving on lowered amounts of oxygen, the training to keep yourself cool under pressure, all that stuff, everything right. played a role and kept me alive. And just just a quick question, you know, when he had to pinch your uh, go in and, and pinch you there, did he have to keep his hand there, or is it just a one time deal? No, nah, he had to keep it for ten minutes. He had his his fingers physically inside my leg, pinching closed this artery for ten minutes until the paramedics arrived. It's something he said he never ever wants to do again. Oh yeah, I mean that's 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 hard, man, and. Um, you know, it's, I was going to ask you if they use tourniquets, um, you know, now over here in the States, obviously in the military, uh, people understand this, uh, you know, the importance of tourniquet use, but now it's starting to trickle down into the civilian sector here in the States. Um, I'm not sure, sure how much it is, you know, over in Australia, you know, if it is or if it isn't, but, um, they, um, we didn't have anything that day. We had nothing. We had, we were severely under-equipped for that sort of injury. What they used was a strap from a life jacket. They, they took their T-shirts off their backs, jammed them into the wound, and used the straps from a life jacket as tourniquet. Oh, wow. Um, so even, even for years after that, they didn't introduce tourniquets into the Navy Diver first aid kit for some crazy reason they introduced a shark risk calculator oh yeah how does that work <laughs> um so if there's indicators so if there's been reports of bait fish then there's a point if there's been a report of sharks in the area there's a point if there's a report if it's shark season between the you know the months of summer in australia there's a point so all these points add up and if they get to a certain point then you don't go surface swimming that day um <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't think it ever actually got over the point where it was too dangerous so <laughs> but um they really didn't do anything but that's that's the nature of our job so you know right. it's an inherently dangerous life right. you can't just stop diving operations or stop military operations because there's a you know one guy got attacked in, in the first time in 60 years by a shark and all of a sudden you've got to account for every fucking shark no it's just a dangerous right. job sometimes shit happens right so okay so now you you know you become you be begun your recovery process and um you know kind of long road to recovery kind of deal or yeah yeah it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, I spent nine weeks in hospital. Uh, I had my leg for a week uh, to start with, but I couldn't feel it. I couldn't move it. Um, 25 centimeters of the sciatic nerve was gone. So the surgeon came in and he, he really, he did the right thing. He left it up to me and he didn't sugarcoat it at all. And he said, basically, your leg is useless. You know, we can, we can, save it and cover it up with a skin graft, but it's like carrying a lump of dead wood around. So, you know what, I, I didn't I didn't want to carry this unfeeling, unmoving lump of wood. I didn't want my, my fitness and my happiness and all that bullshit to suffer carrying it around. So I just – I decided to have it taken off. Um, and it, it wasn't a hard decision. I, I just wanted to get on with life. Um, I knew that there was great prosthetics out there. I really hadn't had a lot of time to look into it, but I, I just figured, you know, fuck, they turn me into some sort of Terminator. Um, <laughs> but after the surgery, 
I went into a really, really bad way. Uh, the pain management team couldn't manage my pain. Uh, the drugs weren't working. My legs swole up massive. And, um, you know, you can see all this stuff. I've got um, the actual footage of the shark attack is on my YouTube page. Oh, wow. um, the, the surgery photos are in the, the video clips of the that I made up and put on that page. Um, so you can see all of this. Like you can see the shark bites. You can see my hand wow. totally mangled. You can see my leg like like huge, enormous. It looked like a fucking bald alien was crawling out of my ass. Um, <laughs> but the pain that came along with it was the, the absolute worst. Like I, I can't even express to you this pain. This is – the, the worst I'd ever had in my life because I didn't know when it was going to end. It lasted 20 hours and all I could do was lay in my bed, bawling my eyes out, rolling from side to side. It was all I could do, just roll from side to side, crying, wishing that I would die. Um, I wished that the shark had killed me. It was that bad and that long. Uh, I even asked my mum to go and buy me a gun so I could kill myself. Um, but... You know, like I said, you got to hold on. Uh, eventually, that pain came under control, and then it came down to that choice, like we were talking about before. I was laying in my bed, thinking, "Okay, what the fuck do I do now?" You know, I had this amazing life, and now a ten-second incident has basically taken all of that away. There's, there's no way I'm going to be able to do my job like this. I can't fast rope with one hand i can't parachute i can't play with explosives with one hand i can't run and do all this shit with one leg so what am i going to do and I, I realized then that that choice was my only power and i realized that i can i can have a shit life or i can have a good life simple so I broke it down to that. I said, okay, what do I want? Do I want to curl up in a ball and cry myself to sleep and get depressed and be sad and push away all this love and support and just get addicted to my pain meds and have a shit life? Or will I do what the military has trained me to do and pick myself up, dust myself off uh, and get on with the job? Now, I'll look at the great things I still have and the great things that I still have yet to achieve and, and strive for a good life. Everyone wants a good life, but no one's going to choose a shit life. So that was the initial step. That's the first step. What What do you want? Do you want a good life or a shit life? I chose good life. And then it was just a matter of working out how the fuck to do that. <laughs> so I couldn't even get out of bed to go to the toilet by myself. So I'm like, all right, where do I begin? And I thought, well, what made my life so good? You know what? And I thought, well, what did I do in the army? What did I do in the navy that I, I love so much? What what gave me that contentment? And I thought, well, first step, what do we do every day when we get to work? We do PT. Okay, well, why would I break a good routine? Okay, first thing I'm going to do is PT. And I, I, I didn't couldn't work out what to do. I couldn't get out of bed. So I looked above me and I had this bar above my bed. And I thought, well, fuck, all right, I'll, I'll – I'll try and do some chin-ups, you know, just lifting my body off the bed over and over with my left hand. And my buddies came in and they tied these TheraBands to the bars all around the bed so I could loop it around my forearm and I could, you know, I could do some flies and I could do some pullovers and I could exercise and get my muscles working, work up a sweat. And just, just to, you know, I probably wasn't doing that much, but just to feel like you're achieving something. And that was the the next step, you know, just train 
and it worked. It, it got me out of my current situation. It made me turn to problem solving. Okay, I don't have a hand, I don't have a leg, how am I going to exercise? And, you know, that whole improvise, adapt, overcome type mindset that we all get taught. Um, so I thought, all right, well, uh, I, I can do this and I can do that, but what do I really want? What's the end game here? And I thought, well, I want to go back to work. I want to, I want to be a clearance diver again. So, you know, that mountain was just too massive to even be able to think about achieving. So I decided to try and break it down into really small, just achievable goals. And I'm talking real small. Like just get up earlier, work out a way to sleep better, eat cleaner, drink more fluids, um, focus on little goals and challenges along the way. And, and that was basically how I did the whole, the whole thing, goals and challenges. doesn't matter how big or small they are. It just mattered that I was setting them and achieving them because sometimes just that first step, that little first goal, that little challenge, as soon as you take that and you achieve that little goal, you can look back and go, okay, I've done that. What's next? And those small achievable goals eventually surmount to big impossible dreams and it works it, it fucking worked for me i got home after nine weeks and i started to update those goals and challenges All right eat even better get up earlier do some workout somehow you know I, I didn't like going outside because i felt like um you know i felt like a bit of a freak i felt so subconscious i was embarrassed of not having a leg of not having a hand of being on crutches and so i bought one of those wii consoles and with the wii you know those motion activated ones and with that i could sticky tape one of the controllers to my forearm and i could hop around the lounge room on one leg doing wii boxing you know work up from five minutes to ten minutes to two hours i was doing it and my my muscles were pumping and i was sweating and it felt good i felt like i was getting stronger and more determined and that was that was half the battle, just staying motivated in my mind. Uh, get off the drugs, you know, all that sort of stuff. Right. And, you know, three months to the day after I had my stitches and my staples out, I went down to the beach near my house and I went for a paddle on my surfboard. And that was another huge thing because I was so self-conscious and so embarrassed. I, uh, I, I could see everyone staring at me and everyone pitying me but I swore to myself I wouldn't let the things that I was afraid of stop me from doing the things that I love. So I just bit down on it and I went out there and I paddled out and I, 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 I put my board down in the water and I looked at my missing hand and I just thought, fuck, please don't let me paddle around in a circle. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't. I eventually got out the back after getting smashed by the white water for about 45 minutes and it just felt so good to be living you know, just doing stuff, just out there in the world. Um, and then six months later, after training my ass off, after getting some weightlifting prosthetics and slowly progressing, um, I went back to the Navy and asked if I could go back to work and they said no. You know, I was like, what the fuck? What do you mean no? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they said, well, you can't go to the teams because you're, you have to be deployable for war to go to the teams. I'm like, oh, all right, fine, look, you know, I'm not as fleet on my feet as I once was and whatever, but I can I can teach. I can go to the dive school and I can pass on this knowledge. Um, 
And they, they thought about it and they said, yeah, all right. And, um, you know, I had this very Carl Brashear from Men of Honor type scenario running through my head. Um, and, man, I'm so glad they made that movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a staple Navy Diver movie. Everyone knows that. Everyone quotes it all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was almost like a, a driving motivator for me as well. I was like, fuck, he did it. He, he got back and he went to work. And I was like, he can do it. I can do it. So eventually they, they said, yeah, look, you can go and work at the dive school three half days a week. So I, I just went five full days and just turned up to work and just never left. Um, <laughs> and eventually worked my way from doing shit jobs to less shit jobs to okay jobs to really good stuff, you know. And I, was, I started teaching the, the first phase, the, the ship's divers course, and all these – bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Navy personnel who wanted to be clearance divers would turn up for their first day and they'd get on the boat and I'd be waiting for them. Prosthetic leg, half man, half mountain bike and they'd get this this fear in their eyes and they wouldn't look at me. And I know what they're thinking. They're they're thinking, oh, fuck, he's here. There's so much more chance of sharks coming now. But – it was good. I, I tried to be, you know, a motivator and a bit of inspiration for them to show them that no matter how no matter how bad it gets on this course, you know, I'm still here. I'm still keeping up with you. I'm still doing these things with you. So don't give me your excuses. You know, just keep knuckling down. Don't quit. Keep going. You will pass if you keep going. Um, so I tried to use that. You know, it's, it's not something I hugely enjoyed. I didn't like teaching. I like doing, I like being the guy on the job, on the dive site, playing with the bombs and w- whatever. Um, and so it kind of wore me down. The hours were really long. Sometimes we're doing 70, 80 hour weeks, going to bed at two and then getting up at six again to go back to work. And it just wore me out, man. And I was, I was feeling haggard and I was struggling to keep up with everyone and you know, trying to make it not look like I was struggling at the same time. But yeah, you know, I, I really was, and uh, I'd been asked to do a little bit of speaking at the time, but the, you know there was only two things I feared in life: it was sharks and public speaking. And uh, but a group of uh, cancer kids, uh, this this group called Canteen, um, that sponsors group, uh, little little get-togethers for kids with cancer. They asked me to go and talk to them, and how do you say no to kids with cancer, right? So. Uh, I went down there and, and spoke to those kids and just felt this, you know, I don't know. It, it took me out of myself. It took me out of my own head. And I saw these kids that haven't even lived yet. And a 19-year-old kid that went to sleep one night and had meningococcal and woke up three months later with no hands and no feet. And that oh. kid hasn't even lived yet. And to go there and just – talk to them and crack jokes and make them laugh and make them forget just for half an hour that they weren't sick and they weren't going back to the hospital. That gave me such a a joy that I thought, you know what, this is something I need to do more of. And so I started doing a little more speaking and it got to the point in August 2012 where I went to my boss and I asked him if I was going to get to get out of the dive school and go to the teams. And he basically just said, no, you'll never, you'll never do that. And so I decided to leave. And that, you know, that was the, the kick in the ass that I really needed. And I thought, well, 
I'm just going to focus on this speaking. I'm going to try and do it as as well as I can so that, you know, maybe I can get a couple of years out of it. I, I don't want to be that guy telling old glory stories a fucking decade down the path. So I'll do this for a little while and I'll work out the next, next step while I'm doing it. Um, and just through doing that and through doing some charity work and um, it, it changed my life into this incredible thing that I, I couldn't have even perceived. Um, it's so good now that I wouldn't even go back. Um, I'd love to have my hand on my leg, but I wouldn't go back to before this because my life, the things that I get to do, the opportunities and the people that I reach and the lives that I I know I've changed is so much more valuable to me now. And you know, that that's really incredible to hear, um, you know, to, to be able to say, you know, I wouldn't go back to that you know, because you're able to make a difference and, um, you know, I guess a lot of people will go through their lives, you know, kind of regular living, uh, you know, work their jobs, retire after 20 years or 25 years, whatever it is, and never really experience what it's like to have a, a kind of a, a hugely positive impact on someone's life. Like, you know, outside of their kids or something like that, you know, um, it, it really is an incredibly rewarding experience. And, uh, you know, it, it's just amazing to hear you, you know, talk about how you were able to get out of that. And uh, one thing you said really stuck out to me when you were talking about uh, when you hit the beach for the first time and you weren't going to let your fears, you know, hold you back from doing something that you love. I think that's something that people uh, will go their entire lives and never get over that hump, you know. Yeah, it's something you have to remind yourself. I still have to remind myself right. uh, about that, you know, when I... I, I live in LA now and I might want to go up into the mountains, go for a hike, but I, I don't want to sweat and wear my robot arm. So, you know, people are going to stare at me because my hand's going to be missing. They're going to be staring at me because I've got this robot leg. And I get, I do get a little paranoid about it. And, and I think, oh, do I really want to go out there and subject myself to that? And I think, fuck that. Fuck that. Go out. Why would you let someone else's judgment stop you from going out and going for a hike with your dog or going to the beach? You're just fucking living. Right. So sometimes you've got to give yourself that mental uppercut and go, stop being a dickhead. Yeah. Well, you know, that, you know it, that's another great point. It's like oftentimes, you know, people kind of think like if you look at someone who is, um, you know, like yourself, you've overcome such a, a trying uh, time in your life or someone who's been, you know, hugely successful at something and, and they're kind of at a point where people feel like, Oh, that person has made it. You know, uh, they have that kind of financial freedom. They've created something that they're well known. Um, but one thing people got to realize is it's not a, um, you know, we we talked about the suicide rate earlier. Uh, it's higher amongst, uh, kind of, you know, people with, uh, and more uh, what we call like a civilized society, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think a part of that is because people hit a certain point and they they no longer struggle or they no longer fight for things that they need, you know? It's, uh, yeah. you know, you make a certain amount of money and then it's like, what's next, right? Whereas if you're constantly struggling, you know, there's something about the human, human, uh, human beings that, you know, we were... Our ancestors, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're hunting all day 
And, yeah. and that's the only way you can eat, right? And so you're struggling just to survive. And I think there's something about, you know, that the human spirit needs to struggle a little bit in order to yeah. to feel like it's worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's why it's important to, you know, not just through a recovery, but constantly through your life, setting these little goals and challenges that I was talking about. Challenge yourself. You, you know, strength is forged in struggle. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the military personnel know this. They know that it's you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, you, know, you, you can take a break. You know, you don't want to be uncomfortable all the fucking time. But, right, right. you know, be comfortable in that. And some people, unfortunately, get comfortable in their misery and they wear that like a badge or like a shield. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough for the rest of us. We need to challenge ourselves and live this amazing life. This world is so fucking great. It's so amazing. There's so much more out there to do that that most of us have never done. You know, just going back to when I was working behind a bar, like thinking, what the fuck is my life going to be, to now getting to travel. You know, I went to Africa a couple of years back and shot a documentary for Nat Geo where I got to embed with an anti-poaching unit and go out and do PT and unarmed combat training, shoot with the guys and handle deadly snakes and hunt poachers. Um, and that's the opportunity that you have out there. If, if you're feeling like I don't have anything, I, I have no one, you need to step outside of that little box of beliefs that you have yeah. because there is so much out there that they're, 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 these anti-poaching units are taking civilians. You can go out there and make a difference. You can travel the world. You can go to these beautiful, amazing countries all through Southeast Asia. You can see things you've never seen. Yeah. You can live a life that you have not yet achieved. Why get stuck in a depressive, comfortable in misery state? It's just not worth it. Make yeah. yourself happy. You know, do something that makes you happy. And if you don't know what makes you happy, it's time to go out there and find it. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's really amazing to me um, because, you know, like you said, there's so many things in the world that you can do and, and things that you don't even know about, uh, you know, it, you know, start traveling and you just kind of you meet new people. You see different ways of living. Uh, you know, over the summer, I, I was able to visit Japan for a couple of weeks and, you know, I absolutely loved it. Like, it's such a different culture from what I'm used to. You know, I'm from New York. Uh, it's such a different culture, you know. And, um, yeah. you know, I was able to visit some of the temples. And, and we didn't just do, like, the tourist attractions. Like, we went into, like, the boondocks and, like, saw how people were living. And it's just it's just amazing, you know, to, to be able to travel and experience some of these things and, uh, you know, uh, eat different foods, smell different smells, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah, it gives you an appreciation for for not only what these other civilizations are going through, but for for your own life, and yeah. you know, it it broadens your mind as to the potential and the possibilities that you have for your future. Uh, it's, I, I was watching this movie a little while ago called uh, Bloodfather. I think it was called. It's a Mel Gibson movie, and one of the closing scenes is like Mel Gibson's dying. And his daughter's there and they haven't really known each other very long, And but she's in love with him. And she's like, Dad, I don't want you to die. I'm, I want to die as well. And he says, no, you won't. Don't. It, it might seem bad now, but tomorrow or next week or next year, you might have the best day of your life. 
and you wouldn't want to miss that. Now, you've got to hold on. You've got to just believe in yourself, believe in the things that you've learned over the course of your life and, and learn from those struggles and challenges that you've had because there's lessons in those. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so since, you know, then you decided that you were going to leave, uh, you know, when they told you that you couldn't go back to the teams and you've done motivational speaking and you've also done like documentary type work. Is that what you're still doing? Yeah. Um, have I got you there? Hello? You there? Yeah, I hear you. Let me let me unplug and plug back in. Sure, sure. All right, you there? Yep. Fuck. No, it's wrong with my phone. I need to go get a new one. How's that? Yep, that's good. Gotcha. You coming? You coming through the handset? But uh, my head. I hate holding the phone in my head. How's that? Yeah, so do I. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, yeah. So I left the navy and and started doing a little bit of speaking here and there. Um, and just over time, you know. I was terrified of speaking. I used to shake. My heart would pound. Um, but it was almost like therapy. And it made me think maybe that's the reason that I don't have any PTSD or what have you because I was constantly getting this whole story off my chest to a, a room full of strangers. And it, it's been quite amazing Um you know, I've been flown to China multiple times. I've been flown to Fiji. I've been when I was in Australia, I was flown out here to speak at a U.S. Navy divers conference. I spoke in Vegas. Um, you know, it's really opened up this new world. And my greatest fear is sharks and public speaking. And now I make shark documentaries for Discovery Channel and do public speaking. Awesome. You know, so it it showed me that your worst fears can become your greatest strengths if you just face them and embrace them. So that's kind of what's happened over the last bunch of years. I got really um, pretty good at speaking. Um, uh, I was making way more than my Navy wage and working a tenth of the time, um, which was pretty incredible. And Discovery Channel came and asked me to be a part of a couple of shows doing interviews. And I, I guess they liked that and, they flew me out to LA to do a talk show and they liked that. So the next year they gave me a co-hosting job and then another one and then another one. And then, um, this year was the first year I did, um, three shark week shows. They gave me a contract, a, a working visa development money for my own show, uh, and three shows a year for the next two years. So oh, it's awesome. It's just been really amazing. Now I get to, you know, I, I've always been a huge fan of people like David Attenborough and Steve Irwin, um, a lot of Australian outback guys that do TV shows. Yeah. And, and to be able to follow in their footsteps, it's, it's, I find it hard to believe sometimes that I'm the guy on these shows sharing 
this amazing natural world with million, literally millions of people. I think one of my Shark Week shows did 1.9 million people. Um, and I did a Facebook live session in front of 150,000 people. And to share this love of nature and love of sharks and, and teach them more about sharks so that they're not afraid of them and they want to respect them and, and preserve them, that, you know, that's a dream come true for me. So, I love this new life that I have. Uh, I live in Marina del Rey in California. My, I flew my dog out. Um, I train at Gold's Gym down at Venice. I see nice. Arnold Schwarzenegger like three times a week. Awesome. Uh, it's it's become like a, a family unit down there for me. And and the dreams, you know, I just keep chasing them. Just create new ones. Cr- trying to create new shows. Trying to create my own shows. Um, you know that that mindset of setting constant challenges and goals it never stops right. because right. if that stops then what are you going to do you're just going to get comfortable you get fat and lazy and become like <laughs> i think one of my biggest fears is becoming like my dad uh, I, I love him <laughs> to death then he was a he was a cop for 25 years and did a lot of incredible stuff but he's pushing you know late 60s now and he looks like he's pregnant and <laughs> like, what, what happened there? <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, you can get motivation from anywhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm turning 41 in March and I went, I went plant-based a year ago. Yeah. Oh, nice. I, so, so have I, so have I. Yeah, man. And doesn't it change everything about your life in a, in a positive way? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Dude, I've, I've, I have had injuries throughout my whole military career, knees, back, elbows, shoulders. I haven't had a single injury since I went plant-based. And I'm, I'm benching uh, 300 pounds. This morning I was out there doing um, chin-ups with 70 pounds around my waist, uh, dumbbell pressing the 115s. Nice. Um, and I'm, I'm not the biggest dude in the world, but I'm strong apparently and I'm not getting hurt at all. And it just – became unnecessary for me to consume animals and yeah. I so I just don't see the point like what, what's the point in killing stuff if I don't need to so right uh, I feel good in my soul there's yeah, I start it's have you started watching these um these documentaries on Netflix like what the health and cowspiracy and all that yeah 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 dude every time I watch those shows I feel so good about my decision yeah, I, like if I can cut down my chances of getting cancer and heart disease and diabetes yeah. and all that shit, arthritis, dementia, um, these are these are all Western world diseases. Right. They yeah. never existed until yep. our culture started consuming mass amounts of animal products. Yep. And and so you know, people, it's so it's so crazy because a, a lot of my friends are, you know, they go like, "Hey, man, like, we'll just you know, I want to like." go that route but i just don't understand like what do you eat all day and i'm like bro it's really not that hard, <laughs> yeah you know what i mean like pretty much everything yeah um but that one of the problems i found was that uh, i ate so much i'm constantly fucking cooking and that gave me the shits um <laughs> so I, last week i got a, a meal delivery uh, it's called uh bistro and I get like 21 meals. Um, it cost me like 230, and they sort of fill in the gaps. 
Um, wow. So I'm not having them constantly. So I'll, I'll go to the gym and then I'll come home and I'll make some oats. And then maybe I'll have two of those delivery meals and then I'll make dinner. It just right. you know, it means I don't have to stay in the kitchen all freaking day prepping this food. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's so crazy that you said that because it was two nights ago I just ordered uh, a meal delivery service myself. Just like there was like a, a discount, you know, some advertisement. It's like, you know what, let me just try it out. Um, yeah. That, they're that, super handy. Crazy. Yeah. I haven't received it yet, but you know I'm I'm waiting on it, and we're going to try and work that into you know how we're eating over here. But yeah, awesome. Have you, have you found that you just feel better? Oh yeah, I mean you know when I first started it, um, I uh, I felt like so I'm up at about like five a.m. every day. So yeah, when I first started it, I found that like I had like maniac like I was waking up like. A maniac, like I had this energy. Like, I was like, "What the fuck's going on?" Yeah, and um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm still in the gym and everything like that. But none of my, you know, none of my lifting has suffered at all. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm deadlifting 500 pounds. Um, Damn. Yeah, and it's like nothing. You know, nothing has changed for me. Yeah. As, as in, in a negative way, you know what I mean. So, um, uh-huh. it, it, it's just incredible, and I just, I try and. Um, you know, like I don't like to to kind of push on to people too much. You know. Yeah, same. Um, it's uh, like I like I like my decision. If people ask me about it, I I'll be happy to tell them. Right, right. But you know, you don't want to be one of those fucking vegan Nazis. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's yeah. actually pretty funny because uh, I know a couple of people like that. Uh, like, oh yeah, <laughs> me too. I work in conservation, mate. Everyone is fucking vegan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty funny, but you know, it's it's just awesome that. Um, you know, in the world that we live in today with uh, so much information readily available that, uh, you know, you can look at things and look at studies and and science. And, you know, you know, when I tell people I, I don't eat meat, they go, oh, so, you know, where do you get your protein from? Like protein is like <laughs> the, the, the number one keyword that I hear. And, um, yeah. you know, one thing that people don't realize is that protein is a, a plant-based uh, substance. You know, it's... um. Where do the animals get their protein? Right, they're eating plants, and and yeah. and people eating meat are just getting recycled protein from the plants. You know, what I mean, it's just it's just yeah. you know, it's just interesting, and um, you know, I'm just, actually I I love it because I'm I, I think I'm healthier now because I'm not relying on that massive amount of meat to fill the void. Now yeah. I'm putting all these different types of vegetables into my diet that I never ate before. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually getting more nutrients. And the the amino acid profile of meat, fine, it's, it's a complete amino acid profile. It's got um, great ab- absorption of protein and all that stuff. Yeah. But you don't need it. It comes with a downside. It comes with that cholesterol. It comes yeah. with all of those that antibiotics. I was just reading New Scientist earlier today, and farmed salmon apparently are now deaf because of the antibiotics and the fungal infections and all that shit that they put into the water for the farmed salmon. Um, so it's getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they actually have to feed these fish dye pellets so that the flesh comes out pink, like we're all used to, because if they don't do that, it comes out a muddy Brown or gray. Yeah. I I was watching a video a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week or something like that. And it just showed like these, you know, and in some places how they're kept and maintained. And it's just like a whole bunch of fish in a small (laughs) little thing. Uh, It's crazy. It's like getting fed, getting fed pig shit. 
Yeah, it's maniac stuff, man. It's just... <laughs> man, I, I think it's just I'm happy with my little safe decision. It might, who knows? In 20 years, it might come back saying, "Oh no, plant based is really bad for you." But yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, um, right. Um, the people used to think uh, cigarettes were healthy for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but some people just don't want to do it. Like you know, I I watch. Um, I, I, I saw Joe Rogan at a comedy show at the comedy store a lot long ago, and I'm a big fan of Joe. I think he's, he's really awesome. Yeah. Um, and he took the piss out of vegans in his stand-up show. It was really actually quite funny. Um, but some of the stuff he says is, you know, it's not 100% accurate. He was talking about that what the health saying that the doctors were all fake or something. But, right. you know, you, you got to – take some of this stuff with a grain of salt. Not everything is going to be true from both sides. Right. Um, and, you know, Joe loves hunting elk. Good for him. You know, i got no problem with that. Um, it's sustainable. If he likes doing that, then good for him. And a lot of other people are the same. But this stuff where people are going out and, and killing for fun and yeah, they're catching I'm, sharks to kill. Yeah, and I'm not a fan, man. It's just it doesn't make any sense. Like you don't need to kill something to have fun. <laughs> you yeah, want to kill something? Weird, yeah. You want to kill something? Join the army. Yeah, there's, there's plenty yeah. of bad people to, out there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I, I like it. I feel fucking great. Um, feeling super strong. Feel good in my soul, and nothing is dying for me to live. So that's that's all I need. Yeah, that's incredible. And and so for anyone in the audience who would like to kind of keep up with you, follow you, maybe on social media, um, or or you know catch some of your shows where can they do that uh instagram is probably the best place um i'm not a hundred percent social media savvy I, I try but i've i don't know how to switch the facebook profile over to a page without getting dicked around by facebook um <laughs> so my, mostly i just post stuff on to instagram uh, i've got a youtube channel that i haven't really done a lot with but uh, I'm going to start working a little bit more on that. Um, just sort of, you know, not not ramming any vegan bullshit down people's throats, maybe just providing a bit of information, showing people what I do for my training, how I live a healthy lifestyle, not just bodily but um, emotionally and mentally as well um, because one of the things I find when I travel and do my presentations is that people are unhappy yeah. And I find that incredible. You know, people break down in my arms sometimes after my presentations because it's like I've switched a light bulb on in their brains as to how to be happy, how to how to be driven, how to challenge yourself, um, how to overcome obstacles, how to embrace change uh, because those things are really quite important to us in, in this journey that is our lives. Um, and, and I think we forget that as we get a little older, um, we get wrapped up in the things like doing our fucking taxes or um, dealing with our wives or husbands or dealing with the kids and work. You know, we get stressed out and we yeah. start focusing on all this negativity that's going on and, and we forget what it is to be happy and we forget how to be happy. And to be honest, it's not that hard. We just, you know, we let it slip away a little bit. So um, I like to just give people a little bit of a kick in the bum, maybe a little bit of a, a motivation through guilt. You know, if, it, if it's me working out and you have to look at me and go, oh, okay, this fucking dude's got one leg and one hand and he's still working out and he's still happy and he's still living a great life, what's my excuse? Then so be it. Right. I'm, happy, I'm happy that that can be your motivation. Um, 
but you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm not trying to go, Hey, fucking look at me. I can do all this awesome stuff. Um, I really just like sharing and, and trying to improve other people's lives because that for me is more rewarding than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're finally able to uh, get up and do this. Um, you know, it's just listening to your story and, and then, you know, the way you approached getting over that hump is just incredible. And, uh, you know, it, it's inspiring me and I, I know it's going to really, um, kind of jolt the audience. Uh, if, if anyone's kind of in that negative space or, you know, in, in a kind of in a bad way of feeling like they're stuck, you know, I, I think this is going to really help people. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm just glad that we were able to uh, get together and do this. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for your service as well. Yeah, thank you, mate. I appreciate it. It's been uh, a good chat. All right, cool. Mm-hmm.